Hi, and welcome to the CDNFI podcast, where we discuss all things related to front-end optimization, web performance, and emerging technologies. Hi, I'm Jamie, and I'm joined with Hampton Catlin. He's the founder of SAS, Hamel, MoveWeb, and also the author of The Pragmatic Guide to SAS. Today, we're going to be talking about mobile web development, SAS, and his upcoming ventures. So to get things started, do you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself, Hampton? I think you did a pretty good job just then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm Hampton. I'm uh, best known as the creator of SAS. Um, though, and I'll get this right out of the way, so it 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 doesn't uh, it it always comes up. Um, uh, I am not actually a front end developer. So the guy who came up with SAS. Uh, my main job is not actually writing CSS. Um, that's a uh, probably the thing people don't, like don't know about me the most because. Sometimes I'll like uh, go to a conference and somebody will come up to me like, okay, me and my friend have this debate and we are either nesting our classes this way or that way. And I'm like, no, 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 you need Chris Bear. Go find him somewhere. Like, <laughs> help you out. Um, I'm not that guy. Um, but yeah, I'm the CTO of MoveWeb. Uh, we'll talk about it a little later, but I'm the CEO of the newly created Gene Hub. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also did a thing called Hamel, which is a pretty popular Rails uh, templating language and uh, Wikipedia Mobile, and I do a bunch of random stuff. You've probably seen me at a conference. Mm. I do that a lot. <laughs> That's a really stirring bio I have, I think. Like, dramatic. Yeah, well, I actually, this, is, this moves on nicely with my next question, because um, I, uh, I think a lot of people who get started in, in web development, or in your case, backend uh, web development, are self-taught, um, go, you know, using learn videos online and, and stuff like that, and and practicing but I'm curious how you got into it and what helped you when um, you were first starting out yeah so that's I mean so there's obviously yeah sorry this is it, it I always find like this topic difficult because in some ways I am self-taught and in other ways I am incredibly not self-taught like it's so funny like I think we can make our own mythologies most people I've met who say oh I'm self-taught uh, there's usually a lot of caveats to that. Um, they didn't usually just kind of in a cave, you know, uh, stumble upon a book and then read it and then just understand computers um, magically or just somehow through like osmosis. Usually there's like a mentor or somebody else who kind of introduces you, whether it's a friend or something. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically for me, uh, even though I don't believe that, I did actually just find a book when I was eight years old. Uh, it was an Apple basic programming book. And I didn't have a working computer at that time. And uh, I read it. And I actually, it was like reading the most exciting thing. What a nerd I was. Because uh, it was just the most exciting book. Like, mm-hmm. it was like describing how the universe worked to me. Like, I, I'm not that good at math. I'm actually, I was always last picked in like math elites or whatever, like that we would do in school. Uh, I was always last picked because I'm terrible. Uh, but uh, like, all of a sudden, like, reading this book it was like an if statement and like logic and i was like this is yes like this makes so much sense it just clicked yeah so in a way in a way i guess that's self-taught but then you know i mean i ended up taking courses in university and actually my high school offered c and java classes and uh, so i did that it was it was you know and it was really easy and fun for me mm-hmm. um but you know it comes from a lot of I mean, not to get political, but like a lot of privilege I had going to science museums and my parents being very logical and supportive. So it's weird. Like I always, it's not a clear line to draw because I, uh, you know, obviously I kind of taught myself, but I already had the backing and the education to do that. Um, but web development specifically is actually a funny story. I, I made this website or like early, early on. I, I did something in high school. It wasn't really, but like my first year of, of university is like 2001. I put up a stupid website where you could apologize to cows for eating them. It was like a tongue-in-cheek comedy website where you're like, sorry, cow, I ate you, but I'm still going to eat you because I don't have any other choice and you are delicious. Um, So it was this kind of like dark humor website I put up. Mm -hmm. And it went crazy. It got all over LiveJournal and people had these little badges on their LiveJournals back then. Um, It was like, I've apologized to the cows, have you? And we got like half a million people kind of signed this apology letter. Um, and that was when I got addicted to the web. That was like, the that was one of the most amazing moments of my life because like I had this funny joke that I just thought was kind of a stupid dark joke to make. 
Um, and then I spent a weekend and put up a website. And then half a million people thought it was funny enough to enter their email address. Like, for no value. I mean, there were more people looked at it or, or I guess, laughed at the joke. I guess some people got offended. Mm-hmm. But, like, that was amazing. The, like, impact you could have on the world around you was just shocking. Like, half a million people. That is, like, you're in Manchester, right? That's, yeah, like, yeah. that's like half a million people in that metro area, right? Something like that? Yeah, Maybe yeah. a little more? But, like... The, the, everyone in Manchester laughed at once because you did something like, and that's when the power of the web. Like that is, you know, that is, very, um, that is yeah, that's pretty cool. Is it still live now? No, Ooh, and I, I do have some like fragments of the HTML left. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I should like rebuild it and put it back up. But the domain got bought by you know whatever one of those spam bots, and I don't feel like negotiating with them for my sorrycal.com domain. <laughs> I should look if it's on the way way back machine. It might be. Yeah, I was I was actually going to say you can probably just view it view it on there. Um, yeah, we can put that on the blog if we can find the link. You can laugh at Hampton's first internet. Okay. <laughs> You've done some pretty impressive stuff, um, as I mentioned before, um, creating SAS and Hamel, and you're the founder of MoveWeb, and you're even... not the founder of MoveWeb. Oh, sorry, you're not the founder. You're the CTO of MoveWeb. Is that it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, and you've even you've even wrote um, a book about SAS as well. Um, so where do you find the time and what's your workflow like when it comes to building stuff? Hmm. That's tough. Uh, part, you know, I, I guess, so I, I believe uh, in quantum realities a lot. I guess this has already come up whether or not I taught myself or learned from other people. And uh, I, I guess I'm really okay with that. So they're kind of being two states at once. Two things mm-hmm. uh, are true. I'm, uh, one of the hardest working people I know, and I'm also one of the laziest people I know. Um, so, you know, SAS, uh, I wrote the first two commits, uh, which kind of outlined a class structure, and then I had a sample language files. And then I spent a while convincing Natalie Weisenbaum that she should work on the project. Uh, and then she wrote the whole thing and has <laughs> continued to develop it and add amazing features that I never thought of. Um, so it's like, that's very lazy, like the amount of coding time. I mean, I put a lot of time in the SAS community uh, and, and discussing language features, but the actual, you know, hours that I spend on my weekends uh, doing, you know, programming on SAS, I, I'm not the open source project runner. Um, so I am pretty lazy uh, in that way. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot uh, of again, them, I don't know. I, yeah, I was going to say that a lot, like a lot of... Um, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's that's a good mm-hmm. thing because it's like you you want to work out a problem, but you're trying to, you know, trying to do it in the easiest possible way. Well, yeah, and you know, I mean, I I'm a problem solver is typically like, and I, and I try to I like to solve real world problems that I see around me. Like I just get a lot, a lot of joy from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't stop making things. I mean, I think that's the like. It's just, it's all about different skill sets, right? So I try to work with people who have very different skill sets than me. Um, and Natalie is a great example of that. Um, I tend to be really high level and I tend to be like big idea and I can push things through. And I tend to like to, you know, talk to a lot of people and, you know, change things and whatever. Um, I'm not somebody who like goes through and reviews tickets. Like I just, it's just, I'm, I, it's not in me. It's probably why I was bad at maths when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, my, you know, my workflow, I do a lot of thinking in the shower. I think that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. That is where I, that is where I do most of my thinking in the morning. Uh, I dream up a lot of the stuff I work on. So, you know, most of my, you know, when you actually look at the stuff I've done, especially move web. And then, so I, I also built Wikipedia mobile, um, and ran that for three years. So, you know, I was the, but I was it was only me on the team. Like I was project lead of an open source project with some uh, awesome committers. Like there's a guy named Dirk Yan who uh, is involved in the VLC community and uh, he was helping out a lot. But uh, like I was responsible for running the servers, the three servers that did all 2 billion monthly page views for Wikipedia mobile. Um, So I spent a lot of my time, like most of my intellectual time is actually put towards stuff like scaling and security, which doesn't sound very exciting. Um, but that is kind of where I, I spend time in my shower, like working on things because you kind of got to make stuff fast and stable and redundant. Um, it's not the sexy side of inventing stuff. Um, like it's, it's cool to build a whiz bang thing, but you kind of got to make it work (laughs) and then work when it's popular and then 
not end up. Um, did they have Friendster in the UK? They it was the. They it was, don't actually. I think it's it, that's just an American thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it was, and then they did not scale. I mean, yeah. Facebook only exists because Friendster totally screwed up on scaling. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was 10, 20 seconds, thirty seconds, forty second load time. I mean, they just like everyone was like, "I cannot use this website. <laughs> this is horrible." Um, and uh, it wasn't even bloated CSS. It was just they they literally, you know, it was 2002, I guess, and they just, you know, web, web scale was not a thing that people knew how to build. I actually think, um, still, I think, I think, um, I think that's still right now, Friendster. No, they shut it back down. Yeah. Well, MySpace is still can, going, so that's, um, that's something. Um, well, I went and downloaded recently. They sent out, or it was maybe a couple of years ago, they sent out an email. Like, you can... Oh, it's now a games community? So I just loaded it up. Oh. Weird. It's like one of those online play games. Anyhow. No, but they let you download all the data before they fully shut it down. So mm-hmm. um, anyhow, Bebo will be sending out that email anytime. It's important for devs to get noticed um, to showcase the, the work. Um, but what ways do you think work best, such as working on open source projects, uh, GitHub profiles, portfolio sites, or just a good old-fashioned TV? Um. So I, I would, yeah. CV is not the right answer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I look. Obviously, doing open source work. I mean, like, just having you get profile. Eh, like, I, I, I get it. I, when I get a resume and it just has a get profile and there's nothing on it. Or, sorry, GitHub profile and it has nothing on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, seeing people do open source work. I mean, I don't. You know, it's clearly a way to find talented people with extra time. <laughs> um, and that's awesome. Like, don't, I, I give a thumbs up to hiring those people. I think if you're, if you don't have the time to go do that stuff, um, the easiest way to break in, at least like, like to getting a good job and stuff is go to conferences and get drunk with, with people, you know, or like go meet people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think drinking is my number one tip for how to make it in the tech community. Um, I might get lambasted for that one. Uh, it's not a healthy uh, option, but no, it's one of those things where just being, I mean, it, it's my joking way of saying just become friends and you can, um, and conferences really are the best way to do that. And it's always hard, even for me, like I, I don't know, I probably do like 14 conferences a year or something like that. Um, and like, even, you know, like I'm a pretty outgoing guy, but like before going to the after parties, I'm always like, oh, like, okay, Hampton, you know, go talk to people. Like, be nice. But even, so for me, that's been, you know, going to those conferences and just going to the after party and just introducing myself to people. Um, Which, I mean, I guess at this point in my career, it's kind of fun because at some point they go, oh, you're that Hampton, Uh, which is kind of a fun moment now. But (laughs) um, no, it's just like just going and being friends with people. It's amazing how many people I've met and then they end up doing cool stuff. And then I end up helping them on their stuff or they help me. And then like just knowing people like, um, if you don't like the, you know, committing to other people's code is kind of the super digital way to become friends. Like mm-hmm. Natalie started working on my projects just because she started patching, sending them in and they were awesome. And I just kept saying, yes. Oh, this is awesome. Yes, yes, yes. And then finally I was like, commit access. And then she just kind of took over Hamill and obviously built SAS then later, um, and it was, but it was like that was a way to build a friendship in a digital way. Like we'd never met. Like, um, actually, we met the first time when I convinced her to code the compiler for SAS. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, no, but like it's a way to become friends to make that network. Like that's the important stuff. Um, or like even if you're not in a big city or you can't afford to go to a conference, like there's usually free meetups. Like in Toronto, uh, Pete Ford, uh, he he started. It was actually well, this is how I got my career started. So I guess I did it this way, was I was just reading Rails books and I was going to a school that um, I, I was trying to, well, that's a long story, but I was trying to go back to school because um, I discovered that back in uh, 2003, it was kind of hard to get a job as a programmer with nothing on your CV and no degree. Mm-hmm. So I tried going back to school and quickly got frustrated. But then he, he, I got this email, oh, we're doing a Rails pub night, no talks, we're just going to all meet up at a pub and meet each other. Um, in Toronto, where I was living at the time. And, uh, like, I ended up, I mean, the people I met that night, I still, like, 
they are integral to my life and my career still today. Um, like, and it's just going out to those events, like, or putting them on. If your local area doesn't have it, just put together a little meetup. Yeah, I um, think um, you can use. Uh, I mean, you could you could probably use meetup.com. Like, I'm I'm sure there's there's loads of places on there where it's like um, I think there's places in Manchester actually where you can go and meet up devs and and just go to the pub or like. Yes. Uh, so that's and I would say don't I, I find a mistake that a lot of young developers make is they kind of go to conferences or um, meetups and they're and only like they focus on the educational aspect mm-hmm. which is cool but blog posts are great also like you can learn a lot faster in a blog post um don't get me wrong i mean i like speaking conferences i like listening to the talks but i've seen people kind of trade um thinking that they're there for class instead of trying to meet people and make connections and i know it's hard for people like if it's hard for me i can only imagine how hard it is for an actually shy person so i'm not trying to downplay the, the difficulty there but um Try going to a meetup where they don't do highly structured things. There are some. Um, programmers, I, for some reason, analytical people, if, if there isn't an agenda, we get really upset. Um, it doesn't seem like a real thing. Well, uh, I, think, I think most conferences have like uh, kind of like an after party or like an event afterwards where they just go after they've had the talk and they've, they've, um, they, they go yeah. to the pub then, yeah. Yep, like, those are the, and then, and then like just go meet people and then go hang out with them, try to get dinner with them, like, even if you feel like you're pushing in a little bit, um, come find me at a conference if I'm speaking there. I will talk to you. We will be friends. Like I'm a normal person, I'm not like some crazy person. Like, and and but that's that's the important. Sorry, that that is my number one tip to people. Like it, you know, it's these connections and people will support you in building a community um, that exists online and in the real world. Yeah, yeah. Um, you actually you previously mentioned that um, you just announced a new project that focuses on. Um, personal um genomics uh care to talk us through that a little bit yeah so it's my it's my new startup um so i'm gonna be uh, i'm i'm still associated with move web but i'm I, today i'm still the cto uh, but i'll be kind of transferring away um that move web's in, in awesome shape and that's been my like baby for the last three and a half actually i guess coming up on four years in november um and you know i've helped build that company from you know seven people to like 150 and you know European whatever group now and we have all this coolness going on and that's still all going well. I just, you know, I always wanted to do my own startup and actually when I first started in MoveWeb, um, my husband Michael had just quit it, uh, was, was just quitting his PhD at Cambridge and uh, um, he, he actually started working for MoveWeb too so we both worked there and we kind of said, look, all right, for a year, maybe a year and a half, we will dedicate our lives to helping get MoveWeb where it needs to be. Um, and then they're like, and after that, we're going to do our own thing. Uh, well, turns out it was way more exciting working like move webs. We do like cool mobile web stuff and help these companies. We built this crazy platform that's like way bigger than what I built at Wikimedia Mobile. Um, and so we kind of got like, yeah, a lot of time passed like without noticing because we were just like having an awesome time. But we finally decided like, okay, all right, all right we have to put brakes on this. It's time to do our own thing. Um, and so what we're doing is we're co-founding a company called Gene Hub, and I just announced it last week at HybridConf in Sweden. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's basically, a, there's no way today to get your whole genome sequenced for a consumer or a regular person. So that, you know, the Human Genome Project in, that the U.S. government did from 1990 to, uh, I think it's 2001, cost $2 billion, and they basically sequenced roughly one person um, for $2 billion. And what's happened is technology's gotten a lot better. Actually, sequencer technology is currently beating Moore's Law, like really, really beating it. Like, um, it's more than exponential uh, at the drop in cost. So, uh, but what's happened is that normal people don't know this, and they don't have any access to it. So we're going to be offering the first kind of consumer-oriented full genome sequencing service. Um, where other services like 23andMe do what are called SNPs. They're like, it's about 0.01, oh wait, 0.001% of your whole genome is what they're doing. Because it's a genetic test is what they're doing. They're just looking for certain mm-hmm. uh, flags kind of uh, in, your, in your DNA. Um, actually, and the way they do it, the way that most high research is currently done, 
because uh, it's all been done without the ability for us to have a lot of people be sequenced. So when they do research on, you know, heart disease or something, um, they're only doing these limited tests. Uh, and I guess, how do I say this? Um, the, the, the thing they're testing for isn't the cause. We don't actually know what's causing the heart disease. Uh, they just happen to know that there's a correlation between this letter being a T or an A or whatever, like the flip of a, of a code. Mm -hmm. uh, it's usually not the thing that makes a difference, if that makes sense. Like, it's just a flag. It happens to usually be associated with. Um, but what we're really excited about is we think when you can do the whole genome, um, and we give this out to citizen scientists, so normal people who, you know, are slightly nerdy and want to, you know, hack their own code and figure out how this works, um, because there's so much we don't know, and uh, currently it's only being done either by super large corporations that are patenting every, patenting everything they can find, or academic researchers who only publish every six years and um, jealously guard their uh, results. Yeah. Uh, yeah can, and, can people actually um, sign up for it? No, is there a, is there a landing page that people can hit? So there's a landing page. At G it's currently gene-hub.com, uh, and if you're the owner of genehub.com. Uh, I'll be in contact soon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're getting the trademark sorted out. It's it's just a blank website at genehub.com without a dash. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, um, luckily there's good rules on the internet to to help with that. So we will we will soon be genehub, I think. Um, but it's currently gene-hub, and so uh, we're not doing sign up yet. Uh, it should be in the middle of September. We're actually going to do a Kickstarter because the way we're going to the way we're doing this is we're basically there are these labs that exist. They're super, I mean, they're research labs, right? They're like, they're ISO, some digits I don't have in front of me right now, like all, all officialed up. Um, and they've bought these super cutting edge machines that cost about $10 million. Um, and they're actually so high productivity, these machines, that they're not getting used all the time. Um, because they can do about 200 people a day, I think, is their maximum throughput. Um, and right now, since it's kind of just researchers, they're not, they don't have 200 a day. Um, so, cause it's just, you know, well, who, who are we putting through this? And have we talked to them yet? So, uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get enough bulk so that we can, well, we, we've got kind of already got deals made with the labs, but you know, we're going to basically be kind of selling their capacity through us. Um, and then we're building the platform too. Nobody actually has a way to host any of this data right now. Um, there are a couple services, maybe, that if you go to your doctor, and sorry, in the UK, you, there's nobody you can talk to, um, and you get blood drawn and you sign enough contracts, and it's, yeah. it's like $10,000 or more is the current what's maybe there if you went to one of these, couple of these companies. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't really want to do it anyway. It's so weird. But they, just, they, they literally give you a link to an FTP file. Um, really? That's what you get at the end. And then you download it, and then there's this six gigabyte file on your computer that you can't do anything with. Um, so we, we're building this kind of analytics platform basically for you to research and control your own genome. So if you want to make it available to your friend who's working on something, or if you want to make it available for researchers and say, hey, look, actually, I'm totally willing to help with cancer research. I'll answer any questions that you want to send to me. You can do that. Um, if you want to try to learn a little bit more about yourself and look for unique mutations that you have that nobody else does, We'll kind of have that available also. So there's a lot of you know nobody has a platform like that right now. It's it's insane how many FTP servers um, exist out there. Like biotechnology is the most backwater part of technology that currently is existing. It's really sad. Um, do you know how if you go to the national actually the UK national database too for genomic information they have an they have what they call an API. Uh, and it is just a username and password to log in to their MySQL server. Really? <laughs> yes. It is just you yes. directly connect with read, write, like read abilities to their MySQL server. Mm -hmm. And you just write your own SQL code. Um, that's their quote-unquote API. Um, <laughs> no permissions, no privileges, no you know security roles, no nothing. It's so crazy. Um, it, it's like some sort of weird dream. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be working on that stuff. So, so, so GeneHub will be will be worldwide, then, so anyone can access it and, and use it. Then, I wish I had my lawyer here. Um, uh, well, it, you don't you don't need to answer that. No, it's no, not, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not like I can't answer it. No, it's so this is really, really like 
the laws aren't written for this stuff. Right. So they most laws and kind of privacy laws and medical laws um, are very much about you going to your practitioner, right? Like you go into your GP, they write down some stuff about your health, um, and it's within your country. Nobody's really. I mean. So we're going to be making it available worldwide, um, and we're pretty sure we're in pretty solid ground because I don't think there's any laws that stop somebody from spitting into something and then mailing it to somebody else um, with full knowledge that you're doing that. Yeah, if you give them consent, I imagine. Right. Yeah. So, But this could get complicated in the future. I mean, I'm, we're really hoping it doesn't. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, we haven't announced this yet, but we'll, I th- we are going to be making this available Um for anyone in the world, um, but you do kind of have to say, "Look, I'm sending this to U.S. Jur- jurisdiction. <laughs> like, yeah. this will be governed by uh, HIPAA and some of the other American laws, and I know that." Um, well, yeah, that's 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 great. That is that's that's great. I mean, like everyone has access to it then. Right. Well, the right people. So we're gonna do like kind of an OAuth-like interface, so mm-hmm. that you can kind of control. Like we know some people don't want anybody ever looking at it, uh, but myself, I want to be open source. Like I don't. I don't consider, just because I'm a weirdo, but I don't actually consider my health information all that private. Like, I, I have anxiety and some depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have ADHD. That's about it. Sometimes I get headaches. Like, I, and I mean, whatever. Like, if I, if I had cancer, I'd be live tweeting having cancer. Um, like, yeah, I'm just, I guess I'm of the generation. You yeah, know, it I depends. Think, People I, are different. Yeah, but, I was, I was going to say, because I, I, I think... It depends who the person is, really. But like, I, I think a lot of people would be open with that stuff. It just depends on, on the person. Um, right, and but... I think there'll always be people. I mean, and I'm fine. Like, we totally support the idea of complete and total privacy on that stuff. We also, you know, it's so funny that um, when you look at, uh, there are people who have made their genomes available on the internet, <laughs> typically through universities. So a couple of universities have like, you can download a sample genome, mm-hmm. um, just one though, um, and. Uh, so those are all completely anonymized, and you can't usually get any health information because it's a di- like, it's weird. It's kind of open, but it's not like it's kind of useless to see a genome and not know anything about the person. Um, that's not super useful for running an algorithm or um, uh, kind of finding out something about somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so um, I didn't mention. So we're going to be doing it for uh, three thousand four hundred and ninety dollars, which is roughly we're we're less than half. Um, the cost of, you know, even if you like, if you could somehow wrangle <laughs> to convince one of these labs to do it, because um, we actually we really want like we think this is like getting the first personal computer. Um, there's not a ton you can do with it today. There's no magic like program to run on your genome today that's like a killer, you know, use case. Uh, but there's so much we don't know, and so much discovery needs to be made. <laughs> and we think that kind of the, the literally the fate of mankind is kind of baked into figuring this stuff out um, and medicine and everything. Um, and there's just mysteries. We just, biologists don't know how a lot of this stuff works. Yeah, I think to me, um, that is, it's a good door to open. I mean, it's a good starting point. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, well, I, that's, that's why we want to get 3,000 is about what the early personal computers were sold for. So in our heads, that was our goal. It was like, can we like make this? Can we do a high quality product and get it to the price of, it's kind of the expensive hobbyist who's willing to buy an expensive quadcopter or something like it's that it's a little fun thing, but it could yeah. turn into something serious later. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I mean that seriously, that sounds that sounds really exciting. I mean, I'm, uh, you said it was mid September that it was going to be. Uh, yeah, uh, so we're just you know what we're doing we're doing uh, Kickstarter video is the hardest part about doing a Kickstarter. <laughs> the Kickstarter, the Kickstarter video. <laughs> yeah, so we're working with the guys at Less Films who they they film a bunch of different conferences um, and and do stuff, and they're good friends of ours. So we're we're working with them right now on a video. Um, that's the one thing we got pricing done. We got our contracts done. We've got our compliance done. Oh my gosh. So many lawyers. I've talked to so many lawyers recently. Um, it's like a whole battery of lawyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. That's, so, that's, yeah, that's, that's very exciting to me. I mean, like, I'm, I, I think I'll be one of the people that signs up <laughs> yes. straight away. <laughs> you've yes. got, you've got to sign up straight away. Perfect. Right. Um, so moving on to uh, my next question. Uh, for those that don't know, um, Haml is a HTML markup language designed to make code simple and easy to read. Uh, what was your motivation um, for building this language, and how has it helped um, devs out there? Um, 
So yeah, so my motivation was I was working. Uh, I was a junior programmer in Toronto. This was like after I went to that Rails pub night. I met some guys who were starting a small shop, mm-hmm. and they they hired me, and. Uh, <laughs> I immediately was frustrated with the quality of markup. They'd all kind of switched from .NET to Ruby, and the quality of the HTML they were writing was just sad. Um, like, the developers would just kind of, like in old PHP ways, you just kind of just dump dynamic content onto a page, uh, and they wouldn't structure it logically. Yeah. And our designers would try to style it and go, I have no idea what you're doing here. I have to rewrite all this. Mm-hmm. So Hamble was actually, I wanted to force people on my team, uh, well, I guess I was the junior developer, but whatever. I'm an opinionated guy. Um, but I was like, I wanted to make people have to do good structured code. Um, also, I, I felt like I, you know, at that time, being a full-time web developer, I just wrote so much HTML. Um, and it drove me crazy, like, closing tags all the time. Yeah. Um, the language wasn't, most people think it, well, they either think I'm a Python programmer, because it's white space sensitive, um, or uh, they think it was just kind of about brevity was the only reason. Like, I don't like typing kind of thing. Like, I'm a Vim user. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a Vim user, and I don't use Python. Uh, I'm fine typing a lot. I, st- I don't even have shortcuts when I do command line work. I just type out really? the whole command. Yeah, I don't that's, like... That's weird. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> well, I just want it... I guess what I like is obviousness is actually my main thing that I usually go for in tools. Like, yeah. it just needs to make sense. Um, and Hamble can look crazy to a lot of people. If, if the listeners out there haven't seen it, it it is an exotic language. Um, it kind of looks like CSS re- ran into Python and YAML and then just kind of popped out something. Um, uh, but then once you learn to read it, it's kind of built on really quickly writing good code with good class names, good IDs, uh, well-structured. It, it Since it's white space sensitive, I really wanted the structure to have to be super clear. Um, it's actually designed so that you scan the left-hand side. Like, so you think of it, it's kind of indented, right? Mm-hmm. And you really just scan along the left-hand side to see what's happening. So if it's a dynamic line, is this a static line? Is this a meta tag? And that you could kind of just do this really quickly uh, when you train your eye how to do it. Um, it is one of those languages that is, I would say, it's probably used by 50% of Rails programmers now, which is cool. Um, and then the other 50% hate it. Um, Why is that? Well, so it looks weird. And I think people don't, like, usually when it's fo- like foisted upon you. Because um, they're, not, they're not used to it. Is that, that's yeah, and they're just like, I mean, I, I, I've never heard anybody say, oh, I actually started using it and then I hated it. I mean, I think it's one of those things you have to learn. And when another developer, or like, let's say you come onto a project and they were using Haml, and you're like, okay, I'll just make this one line change. And then you open it up and here's this, like, crazy white space sensitive thing yeah. you're not sure exactly what you're looking at um yeah i mean it's like you know, it's like people, um sorry it's like a it's like you know knowing javascript very well and then and then running into something like um coffee script, coffee script yeah. yeah and then it's like it's like what what's, go, what's going on <laughs> i don't well know, i mean I, I am proud to say that hamill's list is one of the uh influences of coffee script <laughs> um no but i i am proud that so there's a lot like uh I, my, the thing I'm really proud about Hamill is that it's, uh, it was the, it was a crazy thought that was just one I didn't think anybody else would like, and I put it out there, and other people liked it, and now there's like a whole class of languages that are Hamill like, um, and I, so it's you know it's more like I'm really proud that like SAS also was like the first CSS preprocessor, um, like those are the things that I want written on my grave, like, like he thought of things slightly before other people. <laughs> Like, that's the thing I'm most proud of. Like, I, you know, SAS and Hamel don't have to be the most popular languages. But I'm glad at least there was a conversation about, you know, well, what should HTML look like? Like, it, maybe it's fine how it is. And that's, I mean, if that's the outcome, that's awesome. I mean, I don't really have a particular passion on it. Um, I just kind of knew what I liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a crazy idea. And I wanted to see if it worked. So um, it, yeah, it seems like you just developed it for yourself then, and then uh, I really did, kind of, yeah. yeah. And that's 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 a good way to approach it. And then it, it picked up momentum, really. And yeah, like if it inspired CoffeeScript, <laughs> then yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, so, and a couple um, other weird languages, well, like Slim, and there's some other ones. There's oh, different Slim. every little language, every like you know, like .NET. There's like a couple similar styled things over yeah. there. Like I don't know the names of them, but like. If you're a .NET programmer, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So moving on to my next question. Um, SAS is evolving super fast. Uh, just the other week, version 3.4 was released, um, which begs to question if CSS will ever catch up. Do you think SAS and CSS will ever be on par with one another? Uh, no. <laughs> um, no, I just, uh, yeah. So actually, I just recently gave a, a talk on this. It was my first time talking about it. So I'm, I'm, I feel pretty up on discussing this angle. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a question we get a lot. So Chris Epstein, who's one of the core team members of SAS, spent a long time working with the W3C. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of trying to be like, hey, guy, like, what's going on over there? Like, is this... You know, have you considered some of these features? I mean, because was really me building it. I was upset at the CSS developer I was working with. I saw them using, like, having to repeat code a lot and just do a lot of really horrible things. And I thought, wait, we can make this so much easier. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if it makes sense that the browser would have to deal with things like loops and mix-ins and libraries. Um, one of the nice parts about a preprocessor uh, of any sort, or a compiler, really, of any sort, is that you can kind of include large libraries and then only use small bits and throw away everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so when, you, when you're using SAS frameworks, a lot of times you only use three mixins, And it's fine. The browser doesn't care. It never knows. So, like, by the time it gets to the browser, you just declared a color. They don't care that it was put through, you know, whatever, uh, some, some crazy cool framework you built. Um, I mean, so it's kind of nice. In a way, it's an assembly language. Uh, I'm pretty convinced these days, though, that we uh, need to tear the house down when it comes to the browser and layouts. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's fixable. <laughs> um, I think all that it takes is somebody using a... Uh, I, I mean, for me, I got convinced when I started using a- Apple's... Um, Swift, it's kind of their new layout, constraint-based layout tool. Um, the web should be built with constraint-based layouts, like 100%. That's how we should have built it in the beginning. There were proposals early on that it should be done that way, um, but it didn't make sense with the way the web looked back then. It was overkill. So they just said, let's do a kind of a flow-based layout. Like, we'll just kind of, you know, float things and whatever. Well, then it started getting crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're left with this, you know, like it, it, it's it's not CSS. CSS is just how you describe some attributes of what's going on in the DOM. Uh, I think the DOM layout controls need to totally be thrown out. Um, I think we need to rethink some of this. Uh, maybe we can do it as a layer, something like a cool JavaScript library. I know that there's, oh, I don't remember the name um, of the guys who did it. Sorry, but there is a kind of uh, somebody monkey patched into CSS uh, using JavaScript um, the original proposed spec that was mm. proposed for the kind of constraint based flow. Mm. Uh, I'm not, it didn't, it wasn't, I think it's a little monkey patched on, in my opinion. Um, but anyhow, I, I'm just at this point, I'm, I think that the way we have designed the browser to do layouts. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad we have all these acid tests. Like, we solved a lot of the craziness. That's cool. Um, I'm sorry for proposing something so crazy, but I, I think we need to throw it out. Because um, the, the multiple screens, the crazy layouts we're doing, the um, multiple devices. I mean, sorry, forget multiple sizes. Like, responsive web design's cute and all uh, with multiple screen sizes uh, and popping. Uh, which I hate. Uh, sorry, I hate your. If somebody out there has a design that pops too much, I hate you. Um, <laughs> it should flow nice. It should flow. Yeah, it should just yeah, like go yeah. mobile all of a sudden, like bam. Um, I hate that. Um, well, I thought like, like that's that's the idea with with um, responsive design, I and mean, that's that's the cure, really. That's what a lot of um, developers. I would assume that, that that's what a lot of developers would think. Yeah, I mean, so res- responsive is a name is a funny beast uh i would say like i'm both (laughs) there's parts of responsive that are obvious and of course i completely agree with there's other parts that i think are extremely naive which i I really dislike the kind of media queries will save us all and that um that this that every website should like you should be skilled enough to use media queries to build a perfectly responsive site um, I think with today's tools, what pe- what responsive only people are proposing is basically websites that all look really the same and are super limited in what they can display. 
Um, that is it, it's what it requires. Like there's a look that goes along with responsive websites because there's so much stuff you can't do. Um, and then at MoveWeb, a lot of our customers are they're porting older websites over, and you can't just like the structure of the HTML is so bound up in exactly how the reflow happens um, that it just becomes a nightmare. And like yes, you're fairly simple. You're like the Uber app can be done responsive or something like very clean, very small. And that's cool. I mean, that's the fashion. But at some point, we're going to have to, you know, float an image in the middle and make that look okay. Like, we're, we can't just have a design language where we say, well, you know, the limitations of the layout engine are the fashion, and that's how we're just going to leave it forever. Um, so that's where I get, I mean, obviously, you should work on all screen sizes. That's the part that 100% I agree with. And obviously, having multiple markup, uh, especially if it requires you kind of forking your code, is a terrible idea. Um, but that's about where my total agreement ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I, it's very frustrating when you have to do something like that, like put like float an image or something like that. It's, it can get, can be a, can be a real headache to be honest. Um, right. Well, it's, it's, it, it, it's not full design mode. Like mm-hmm. you can't build whatever you want. You really, the designer has to know the intricacies of how HTML works. And how the browser works, which is, I'm not saying the worst thing, but like, we can't have all art is now just this engineering level. Like, let's, let's bring back the ability to do things. Um, like, I, I think, is, I, I take myself as like a technical guardian. I'm a back-end developer, and I like to be a technical guardian of creative people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's why I just, I kind of reject the idea that like, oh, no, 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 yeah, you can't do that, but it's okay. Just do it this way. Um, like, we, we, need to, we need to make the tools work better for people. Yeah. No. Yeah. For people more creative than engineers. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Actually, this ties in nicely with my next question. Um, SAS was founded way back in, I think it was two thousand and six. Two thousand seven. Two thousand six. Two thousand seven. I've got two thousand and six here, actually. I yeah. I'm sure six. I should look <laughs> it up. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not a numbers guy. I told you I did last. Yeah. Well. Past, yeah. Um, that's right. It, it was it was founded way back when. And has grown enormously, um, sparking popular mixins and, and frameworks like Bourbon, Compass, and um, Suzy. I wondered if you have a favorite SAS framework or mixin that you like to use all the time. Uh, they all do different things. I don't do a ton of front-end coding, but I pretty much always do... Uh, it's usually Bourbon. Um, that's what I'm usually using. Yeah, I think that's the most popular one, actually, Bourbon. Well, it's just it's just some mixins. I mean, I think well, it, it now does a little bit. I mean, they've they've expanded it, um, but to me, it's just my little mini utility uh, kit. Like, I'm not Susie's a little like like is it, since I'm not a full time friend developer, uh, like I'm typically doing dumb simple things with CSS. Um, I mean, most of the time I spend with CSS or SAS is looking at you know tickets or language debates um, about what's the most expressive way to create this CSS. <laughs> um, so, I mean, but I typically just go with bourbon because I don't have a lot of other strong opinions. Um, Susie's really cool, though. And, uh, you know, well, Chris knows my opinion about Compass, which is, and he agrees, it needs to get broken up. I mean, it's cool that you, whatever you use is all, like, it doesn't all necessarily have to get added to your browser, mm-hmm. like I said, with frameworks kind of being optional. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it is a memory hog because of loading and all those things. Um, but he does get to do some cool stuff like uh, prefixing, which the prefixing now is dynamic. So based on the popularity of various, you can say I want 90%, 90% support, and that means it'll only use the prefixes required to get 90% support. Uh, and if you said, I'm fine with only cutting-edge browsers working, then it'll put out, it won't prefix anything for you automatically. Um, so it's kind of got this dark magic built in. It, uses, it actually uses the caniuse.com data um, on each update to change um, what gets included at what rate, like what rate. So that's, I mean, that's cool dark magic. Um, but uh, so I, I run the LibSAS project, the C port. That's been my kind of latest thing, mm-hmm. and uh, just to get it way faster, it's a C plus plus port of SAS uh, that can be embedded into any language. And uh, including browsers, wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, <laughs> uh, but Compass is all in, uh, like a lot of it's in Ruby because it's doing these kind of dark magic things. 
Um, so it's really hard to port kind of what is Compass, it's mixins, it's all these other things. Um, I mean, if you're a Ruby based SaaS developer, you're using the Compass command line, like use Compass, why not? Like it's got everything. Um, it's, it, it was the first of its kind and it is, it is well constructed and Chris and his team are awesome. Um, but I'm just kind of late. Bourbon works, works with libsass, so I just drop it in. Move Web focuses on delivering one unified, ex- unified experience across any device, but that doesn't come without its obstacles. With more devices like smartwatches and eyewear like Google Glass, what challenges um, does it face? Yeah, so you know, Move Web is kind of the it's based off the work I did at Wikimedia Foundation, um, and it's kind of a reasonable platform and toolkit. Um, so the way it really works is that, you know, based on the device, um, which at this point, the main ways we know what device it is are, is the user agent, but there's other much more elegant ways in JavaScript to, to do this. Um, but uh, based on the device, we kind of customize the output um, and the markup. Um, so you can float that picture in the middle if you need to, um, but mostly based on just a different device, not just a screen size. Um, well, because typically, uh, you know, people aren't grabbing their desktop browser windows and resizing them unless they're just testing their friend's website. Um, like you're just you, you know, usually on desktop you have your browser open is a browser size, mm-hmm. um, and so we basically help like uh, customers rework their webs their existing websites um, and new ones to kind of customize the content as it flows out to the device. Um, so like, oh, it's this. Well, let's just change these parts here, or include a different style sheet, or a whole different uh, redesign. So one of the things that we do a lot are A/B tests. Um, with MoveWeb, it's actually really easy to do a full redesign A/B test. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, the one of the philosophies with MoveWeb though is since we can customize the markup on the fly, um, stuff like smartwatches is, is the stuff where MoveWeb works the best. Um, I mean, obviously, so it's funny. Smart devices are funny because they just don't speak the web. I mean, any sort of web that we know, the like HTML web. Um, they maybe, you know, Google Glass uses a form of HTML, um, sort of. But they do not speak. They do not, you can't go to a web page on them um, currently. I think that'll change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with, you know, with MoveWeb, we can take a page and turn it into like voice XML. Like, that's fine. You can transform it into kind of anything you need. Um, it's not just for redesigns or mobile stuff, but obviously the big use case is mobile. Um, since a lot of companies have, you know, put billions of dollars into websites. And uh, it's funny, working with big companies, you really realize why rewriting and rebuilding websites as a large company costs so much. Because um, there's so many jurisdictions and groups and departments and people, and the concerns actually really matter, though, a lot which is funny, like somebody coded years ago a contractual exception or something and to like a deal they have with a audio audio company. I don't know, whatever, like some, some site has some weird exception in it. And when you try to rewrite it, um, you all of a sudden break the contract with that company and you didn't know it mm-hmm. um, because the guy who wrote it is long gone. Um, and nobody remembers that contract. Uh, so it's it's tough. So yeah, I mean, so MoveWeb we we focus a lot on on varying the HTML um, in order to kind of change things on the fly. Because because at the current moment, if you work in a big business and you're a front end developer, you have zero power to change the markup on the site. Yeah, you just sort of um, like you have to go with the flow, don't you? Really? Well, you have to go with the with the back end developers only. So you can write up some HTML you need, like here's how it should look. And then you send it to them, and then nine months later, after you get the budget, they start working on it, and then they send you the final product. And then if they did it wrong in any way, you have to, you know, reschedule the whole thing for another nine-month dev cycle. Um, where at MoveWeb, it's really a tool for front-end developers, so it's like you can just go change the markup, and it takes about two weeks to redesign a whole website instead of like nine months. <laughs> um, and it seems to work, so it's been really fun because. It's it's funny companies don't believe us. Like <laughs> you're like, oh no, we can redesign. You're like you can redesign your website in two weeks, and they're like, no, you can't. It's like, yes, no, you actually can. <laughs> uh, and so actually, the MoveWeb sales process is when a customer calls us up, 
we actually just have we have two engineers who are front end developers who just go redesign the website in a day. Like you can get most of it done. You know, there's always edge cases. This is what the two weeks are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, yeah, in like a day they go build a full demo of the live website actually working, the real website. Um, mm-hmm. Like you can book flights when we do it for an airline, um, and it works. Uh, and that's our sales process because we just do it because they didn't believe us otherwise. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of cool. So it's a cool what, business to be in. That's cool. What, what's, um, like, when, when a client's usually, when clients have usually phoned you up and, and asked about um, MoveWeb and, and, like, how long it would take, like, what's, like, like what, what, what do they expect? Well, they expect, you know, 9 to 12 months. I mean, that's what they're, like, you know, a lot of, a lot of our business is the... Uh, kind of working with marketing people who are fed up because um, the back end rewrite, you know, we're upgrading to Java 6 and that's going to take, you know, the whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, and the marketing team's like, but we're rebranding. Like, I don't care about your Java 6 upgrade. Um, yeah. And there's a good reason why they're upgrading their Java. So I'm not, I don't mean to make fun of the back end because it actually matters. Um, this stuff makes a lot of money and it's important. Um, but yeah, but so a lot of times those are the people who want it fast. When we work with the uh, engineering teams themselves, um, yeah, they expect it to take kind of nine months or so. Um, it it doesn't. <laughs> uh, but it's funny we we have had um, we typically try to say the time is longer um, in order. I mean, there is like like if you know training and time like that has to kind of be factored in. Yeah. Um, it's not so bad. It's mostly just CSS, but. Uh, um, yeah, when we're when we're working with them, we we typically try to double our times that we say, just because, yeah, they don't believe you otherwise. Yeah, just so you have some. Yeah, I mean, like it could be buffer time as well, but like, I mean, even even ed, even when you said edge cases were like two weeks, that's, that's still um, short space of time, really. It's it just completely. I mean, it is insanely faster, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and you know, pretty robust too. I mean, you know, we we run. I think we have 300 live corporations. I think it's like major. Uh, not. I don't mean just their corporate websites, um, but like like Macy's.com has run through us. Um, like a bunch of kind of major companies, and um, I've been up up till now. I'm kind of glad to now pass on their side. We've, we've never had any downtime um, on our system, um, and. Uh, I'm very glad to be passing on that responsibility to somebody else because it's made a fun past three years. Well, you're moving on to GeneHub now, so exactly. um, yeah. Um, like if somebody can't access their genome for like an hour, they'll, they'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, if somebody can't buy something on Macy's, it's kind of a big deal. I think yeah. I think I think the the, the entire marketing team would be yeah. like going crazy. Like and security is just as important on both. So whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well. Um, yeah, it's it's been great talking to you, and um, thanks for coming on to the podcast, Hampton. And I can't yep. wait to see GeneHub. Yeah, GeneHub.com, and follow me at hcatlin because I'm funny on Twitter. <laughs> All right, yeah, thanks, Jake. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out more great podcasts over on cdnfi.com forward slash blog. <laughs>